Visit digitalnomad.mx and sign up for my email list and you'll get a free 30-day course on getting fluent and staying fluent, plus a few other pretty cool bonuses. I found a really interesting article written in 1908 about Porfirio Diaz. Half of it is about his history and half of it is an interview with him. If you remember the episodes that I did on the Mexican Revolution, Porfirio Diaz was the so-called dictator of Mexico. And this interview took place two years before the revolution. This week and next week, I'm going to read the part of the article that is the history of Porfirio Diaz. And then the following week will be the interview. So let's get into it. The Spanish Indian boy who was to make the plundered and degraded Mexican nation a challenge to the statesmen and a confusion to the political doctrinaires of the world was born 77 years ago in the town of Oaxaca among the mountains of southwestern Mexico. And when he says 77 years ago, this article was written in 1908. And so Porfirio Diaz was born around 19 or 1830. That same valley gave birth to Benito Juarez, the pure-blooded Zapotec Indian lawyer and patriot, the man in the black coat, who was the first constitutional president of the republic. Porfirio Diaz was the descendant of Spaniards who married women of the Mixtec race, an industrious, intelligent, and honest people whose history is lost in the myths of Aboriginal America. He was the son of an innkeeper. An institution of learning now stands memorially on the site of his birth. Three years after he was born, his father died of cholera, and his Spanish mixtec mother was left alone to support her six children. When the grown boy wanted shoes, he watched a shoemaker, borrowed tools, and made them himself. When he wanted a gun, he took a rusty musket barrel and the lock of a pistol and constructed a reliable weapon with his own hands. So, too, he learned to make furniture for his mother's house. He made things then, as he afterward made the Mexican nation, by the sheer force of moral initiative, self-reliance, and practical industry. He asked no one for anything that he could get for himself. Go from one end to the other of Mexico's 760,000 square miles, on which more than 15 million persons live today, and you will see everywhere evidence of this masterful genius. You turn from battlefields to schools, from schools to railways, factories, mines, and banks, and the wonder is that one man can mean so much to any nation. And that nation, an American republic, next in importance to the United States and its nearest neighbor. He found Mexico bankrupt, divided, infested with bandits, a prey to a thousand forms of bribery, Today, life and property are safe from frontier to frontier of the Republic. After spending scores of millions of dollars on harbor improvements, drainage works, and other vast engineering projects, and paying off portions of the public debt, to say nothing of putting the national finances on a gold basis, the nation has a surplus of $72 million in its treasury. This, in spite of the immense government subsidies, which have directly and indirectly produced 19,000 miles of railways. When he became president, Mexico's yearly foreign trade amounted to $36 million. Today, her commerce with all nations reaches the enormous sum of $481 million, 
with a balance of trade in her favor of $14 million. There were only three banks in the country when President Diaz first assumed power, and they had a small capital, loaning at enormous and constantly changing rates. Today, there are 34 chartered banks alone, whose total assets amount to nearly $700 million, with a combined capital stock of $158 million. He has changed an irregular and ineffective pretense of public instruction, which had 4,850 schools and about 163,000 pupils into a splendid system of compulsory education, which already has more than 12,000 schools, with an attendance of perhaps a million pupils. Schools that not only train the children of the Republic, but reach into the prisons, military barracks, and charitable institutions. And from one end of the country to the other, with $800 million gold of American capital alone invested, it is the invariable testimony of both foreign and native investors that the government is honestly administered and that business enterprises are dealt with fairly, intelligently, and without the slightest suggestion of blackmail, where before all was corruption, oppression, and confusion. The slender, dark-eyed Oaxacan boy with the Spanish mixtec blood in his veins, who was to do these wonderful things for his country and change Mexico from a weakness and a shame to an honor and a strength among the American nations, could not foresee the mighty part he was to play in history. He wandered much as a child among the ruins of Mitla, those vast remains of a native civilization that reaches back beyond Cortez, beyond the Mayflower pilgrims, beyond Columbus, beyond even the Aztecs, to a time when the Zapotecs and Mixtecs reared their courts and altars, lived their theocratic and socialistic lives out on their own continent, and dreamed not of the Spaniards who were to come with dogmatic theology and gunpowder. Here among the extinct altars of his Aboriginal American ancestors, he learned to love the native soil with a love and strength that has thrilled into life the national spirit cowering under the blanketed, barefooted ignorance of Mexico. Then the author spends a couple paragraphs talking about how great Porfirio Diaz is. Later on it says, No man may know how old are the people who were yet to be made a nation by Diaz. Before the birth of Christ, Mexico had cities, temples, courts, and laws. Her sculptures, her potteries, her gardens, her gold, silver, and copper mines are ancient beyond human knowledge. In Yucatan and in Oaxaca are the remains of wonderful buildings made by the original American civilizers. Not far from the city of Mexico is the mighty pyramid of Cholula, larger than any pyramid in Egypt, on the summit of which stood the rich temple of Quetzalcoatl, the fair god. About this pyramid, now a desolation, Cortes the Conqueror counted 400 temple towers before Spanish Christianity laid the city waste and destroyed its records. Yet the scientists who are today digging around the pyramid say that it was old and its origin unknown even before the Aztecs discovered the plain of Cholula. When the heathen king Penda was fighting to maintain the religion of Woden against the religion of Christ in England, and when Theodore I was Bishop of Rome, the Toltec race reigned in Mexico. The Aztecs appeared in the 12th century when Richard the Lionhearted was attempting to rescue the Holy Sepulchre from the Saracens. 
They settled in the Valley of Mexico and built their capital on piles in the middle of a shallow lake, now the city of Mexico. The empire of the Montezumas began, it is said, about the year 1460. And when Cortes, the murderous and greedy Spanish invader, landed among the Aztecs, Montezuma II was on the throne. The death of that generous and amiable monarch, by the arrows of his own warriors when Cortes compelled him to appear before his infuriated people in the hope of quieting them, the torture and death of Cuauhtémoc, his royal successor, and last of the Montezumas, the destruction of the native temples and records by Christian Spain. These were incidents in that great and thrilling spectacle of an entire civilization extinguished by force. Throughout Mexico today, you may see millions and millions of the descendants of the ancient Mexicans in gaudy blankets, preposterously wide and tall hats, trousers so tight that you wonder how they are <laughs> removed, sandaled or bare feet, a brown-skinned, straight-haired people with large black eyes, indolent ways, and an affectionate, gentle, polite, grateful people. It is enough to bring tears to the eyes of an American to see these wronged peons, their wives and children, poor, patient, eager to, eager to be loved, responding instantly to every kind word or look, clinging to religion with a simple earnestness that adds a new holiness to the crumbling Christian shrines of their country. To see humble men and women everywhere holding hands, caressingly, even on the highways. To see the poor constantly giving to the poor. And it just goes on like that. And to these original Americans, Porfirio Diaz is something less than a god, something more than a man. If he has shed blood freely, if he has governed with an iron hand, if he has seemed to deny the democratic principles for which he fought on the field, if he has retained office when he yearned for retirement, it was principally for the sake of the downtrodden peons that through long peace, industry, and education, even though the conditions were imposed by armed force, the trampled and stripped heirs of the first American civilization, the real children of its soil, might rise and remain forever a free and enlightened people. For, after all, when every vote in the Mexican Republic is cast and counted, the country will be ruled by its aboriginal inhabitants. Again and again during my talks with President Diaz in December, he expressed his confidence in the ultimate rise of these wonderful tribes to the highest plane of civilization. He seemed to tower up with a new dignity when he spoke of them. His plan for nationalizing education is born of faith in them and their future. With the downfall of the Aztec Empire, the Spanish monks swept away every vestige of original civilization, and the annihilation of the great native temple on the spot where the present cathedral stands in the city of Mexico was merely a single event in a fierce vandalism that lost to the world the key to one of the oldest and most interesting civilizations. It is not necessary to tell the appalling story of 300 years of Spanish viceroys in Mexico. They stripped the land and enslaved the people. With the reign of Philip II, he whose religious bigotry made the Netherlands revolt, he who sent the Armada against England, the Dread Inquisition was established in Mexico. And as recently as 1815, heretics were publicly burned to death on the ground, where you now may walk in the capital among flowers and trees to the sound of a military band. Before the Spaniards came, the natives cut the hearts out of living human sacrifices in their worship of the gods. 
But the Christianity that followed Cortes seemed at times to trample the very souls out of its victims. Dominican, Franciscan, and Carmelite monks overran the country. The monastic orders became enormously rich. Their monasteries were fortresses. They got possession of the richest lands. Millions and millions of dollars were spent in the decoration of churches. Even today, you may see evidence of the almost unbelievable extravagance that accompanied the cruel arrogance of monastic rule. While the mass of the people, beaten and cowed, sank into lower and lower depths of poverty and ignorance. It was a priest. Oh, marvelous wheel of justice, a priest of Spanish blood who struck the first strong blow for Mexican independence in September 1810. Miguel Hidalgo was 60 years old when he ascended his primitive pulpit in the small town of Dolores, proclaimed the revolution in a loud voice and with a cotton banner bearing the image of the Virgin of Guadalupe, followed by a handful of patriots armed with knives and clubs, he roused a part of the country, stormed and captured Guanajuato, San Miguel, and Celaya, and marched against the capital. The white-haired patriot priest was defeated, captured, and promptly shot to death with three of his companions. Hidalgo's venerable head was stuck on a pike and exhibited for 11 years on the fortress wall of Guanajuato. It now rests in the splendid cathedral of Mexico. Another priest... Jose Maria Morelos carried on the struggle begun by Hidalgo. He turned out to be a good soldier, and the story of his war for freedom is one of the most picturesque pages in history. But in 1815, he was taken prisoner, condemned by the Inquisition as, quote, an unconfessed heretic, a traitor to God, to the king, and to the pope, unquote, and he was shot. It was Agustin de Iturbide, once a colonel in the Spanish forces, who won the tremendous fight attempted by Hidalgo and Morelos. But Iturbide had himself proclaimed emperor, lived in a great palace, now a hotel swarming with American company promoters, and established the church as a monopoly. Then arose General Santa Anna, a dashing, vulgar, brave adventurer, whose forces were finally scattered by American volleys, this picturesque and tyrannical rogue proclaimed a republic, banished the emperor Iturbide, and, when the fallen emperor had returned to Mexican soil, had him shot. Santa Ana was a brilliant political gambler who alternately governed the country through puppet presidents and played at being president or dictator himself. He won battles, massacred prisoners, tried to crush the Texas Revolution, was captured by the Texans and released, lost a leg in defending Veracruz against the French, and had the limb buried with royal pomp, was twice exiled and twice recalled, and was again driven into exile by a revolution, only to return and die in obscurity. It was this many-sided but unprincipled soldier who commanded in the disastrous war with the United States. While his country was gradually wrecked by successive wars and political intrigues until bandits took possession of its highways, and its blackmailing, perfidious officials were the scandal of the age, young Porfirio Diaz was studying in a Roman Catholic seminary in Oaxaca. The news that an American army had invaded Mexico set his soul on fire. He walked 250 miles across the rough country to the capital to offer himself as a soldier. But it was too late. 
Mexico had already surrendered nearly half of her territory to the conquering Americans. The boy went back to his mother with a new look on his face. His godfather, the Bishop of Oaxaca, told him that he was to be a priest. He refused to accept the decision. He had made up his mind to be a soldier. A terrible scene followed, but he withstood the reproaches of his mother and the bishop. In that hour, the seed of modern Mexico was germinating unconsciously in the heart and brain of the Spanish Mixtec lad of 17 years. Having renounced the career of a priest, he studied law and, in time, was able to earn his tuition fees by taking law pupils. Through one of his professors, Don Marcos Perez, he met Benito Juarez, the illustrious Indian lawyer, then governor of the state of Oaxaca. Juarez, who was to begin the work of reform, completed and unified by Diaz, took much notice of the youth and had him appointed librarian of the college. These two are the greatest names in Mexican history. Suddenly, Don Marcos Perez was arrested and confined in the turret of the local convent of Santo Domingo as a conspirator against the dictatorship of Santa Ana. That kind of thing usually ended in ignominious death. It was important that the prisoner should have means of communication. His life depended on it. Young Diaz did not desert his benefactor. With his brother, he scaled the walls of the convent at night, swung from a rope in front of the prisoner's window, talked with him, escaped the dictator's sentinels, and twice returned to repeat the thrilling adventure. There is nothing in fiction more exciting than the tale of these three nights, when the future president of Mexico hung on the end of a rope, planned in the darkness, almost within arm's reach of the sentries, the safety of the Mexican patriot who had been his friend. I thought of the pale youth swinging in the midnight air 53 years ago, when I saw him looking down from Chapultepec Castle in his old age, the maker of his nation, the most interesting and impressive figure of his time. The revolt against Santa Ana's tyrannies in 1854 was led by General Alvarez, a pure Indian, who had fought for independence against Spain. The dictator audaciously called him the dictator audaciously called for a popular vote to sustain him. It meant death or imprisonment to vote against Santa Ana. In Oaxaca, the dictator's troops and cannon were drawn up in the plaza, where the votes were recorded. The professors of the Law Institute, Diaz was now a professor, were commanded to vote for Santa Ana. The young professor, now only 24 years old, went to the scarlet-covered days where the professors were tremblingly writing their names in favor of the dictator and asked to be excused from voting. He was taunted with cowardice. Without another word, he went to the opposition book where none had dared to write and recorded his vote openly for General Alvarez, leader of the revolution against Santa Ana. In the uproar which followed this daring act, Diaz disappeared in the crowd, and by the time his arrest was ordered, he had mounted a horse, and rifle in hand, he rode down all those who opposed him, reaching the town of Mixteca, where he put himself at the head of barefooted peons armed to overthrow the dictatorship, and scattered the troops sent to pursue him. That was Porfirio Diaz at the age of 24 years. After the fall of Santa Ana, General Alvarez became president and he appointed Juarez 
Minister of Justice and Ecclesiastical Relations. Juarez drafted a law subjecting soldiers and the clergy to a to civil trial. This aroused the clericals to opposition, and the church preached resistance. Alvarez resigned, and Ignacio Comenfort formed a provisional government, announcing that the clergy must submit to the laws. There was a clerical revolt in Puebla, which was promptly suppressed, and the cost of the operation was defrayed by a government sale of church property. The war between the church and the republic had begun and it did not end until the soil of Mexico was wet with blood. The Republic forbade church corporations to possess lands, except what were actually necessary for church purposes, and directed the sale of all other church lands. Then, a constitution abolishing all ecclesiastical or military privileges, providing for universal instruction and guaranteeing freedom of speech and the right of press, the right of petition and association and the bearing of arms, was adopted. This was the cause of a great civil war. Diaz became a captain in the National Guard, and in July 1857, he led an attack on the clerical and conservative revolutions near the village of Ixcapa. The battle became a hand-to-hand -hand fight. The young captain, then 27 years old, was hit in the side by a bullet which made a large hole. He fell, but a moment later, white-faced and with blood streaming from his side, he rose and threw himself into the fight with his cheering soldiers until the battle was won. Nearly two years afterward, an American naval surgeon removed this bullet. While still suffering from his wound, he was called upon to help to recover his native town, Oaxaca, from the fierce revolutionary leader, Cobos. With a squad of men, he led a desperate attempt to break into the enemy's position. Later on, when his wound had reopened and he was too ill to buckle a sword about him, his courage and leadership won the bloody fight for possession of Oaxaca. Comenfort, having proclaimed the new constitution, had declared himself dictator and then fled to the United States. Juarez became president, pledging himself to maintain the constitution and to work for the destruction of the political power of the church and the confiscation of its vast properties. The clericals and conservatives established General Miramon as president in Mexico City. The handsome, courtly Miramon, who was afterward executed by the side of the Emperor Maximilian. War raged throughout Mexico. The marks of this terrific struggle are visible everywhere today. It was a war in which priests appeared, crucifixes in hand, at the head of charging troops, a war in which the curse of the church was thundered from hundreds of altars. A war in which the treasures of centuries were roughly stripped from walls, altars, and sacristies. Armed peon patriots roughly breaking into dim interiors, gleaming with gold, silver, jewels, priceless old carvings, embroideries, painted and sculptured Christs and Madonnas. It goes on and on and on like that, so I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit. And all manner of costly accoutrement, accoutrements, I don't know, were melted down to pay the cost of soldiers. Diaz had become governor of a state and military commander of a district. He had the rank of colonel. The United States recognized President Juarez, but the enemy had him besieged in Veracruz, 
where he issued a proclamation confiscating the lands of the church, followed by proclamations secularizing marriages and guaranteeing religious toleration. Even against the whole force of the church and its political allies, against ecclesiastical anathemas and against the accumulated influence of tradition, added to a desperate soldiery backed by an intelligent aristocracy, the black-coated Indian president, with his army, won steadily. When the capital had been taken and Juarez was seated in authority, Diaz went back to Oaxaca and was elected to the Congress. General Marquez, a remorseless slaughterer of prisoners, succeeded to the place of Miramon, and he advanced with his troops to attack the capital. When the firing was heard, Diaz arose and asked the Congress to let him join the Republic forces. The young colonel, by a night attack led by him in person, defeated Marquez, capturing seven guns and seven or eight hundred prisoners. That made him general. It is useless to recount all the battles of Diaz. The record shows that he served Mexico as a soldier for 54 years. In 1862, President Juarez suspended payments on Mexican government bonds. There was no money. War had emptied the national treasury. England, France, and Spain demanded payment for their bondholders and, failing to get more than promises, formed an alliance and sent an allied fleet to the Mexican coast. The Republic was exhausted and the Allies were permitted to land and occupy Veracruz. Then the weak mind of Napoleon III took fire and he dreamed of conquest. Presently, he sent an agent, Don Juan Alamonte, to propose a Mexican empire under the suzerainty of France, whereat Spain and England indignantly withdrew their forces. At once, the French proclaimed a military dictatorship under Alamonte, and a French army marched inland. Diaz's brother was the first Mexican wounded in this advance. There was a great battle fought at the city of Puebla. Diaz was second in command under General Zaragoza. Although the Mexicans were outnumbered three to one, they inflicted a terrible defeat upon the invaders, and Diaz is the most slashing, heroic figure in the story of that day's fighting. Mexico celebrates the victory of May 5th as one of her great national anniversaries. Nearly a year later, the French, with a greatly increased army, besieged Puebla, and after weeks of fighting, sometimes from house to house and hand to hand, with Diaz thrilling his comrades by his desperate courage and brilliant methods, the city was starved into surrender. Diaz was made prisoner, refused to give his parole, and with a peon's blanket covering his uniform, managed by a clever ruse to escape, visit President Juarez in Mexico City, and accept command of the Eastern Army of the Republic, just before Juarez abandoned the capital to the invaders. When the French had entered the capital, the imperial crown of Mexico was offered to Archduke Maximilian, a brother of the President Emperor of Austria. The young prince and his beautiful young wife Carlota were escorted across the ocean by French and Austrian warships and were crowned emperor and empress in the Cathedral of Mexico City. That was in 1863 when the Civil War prevented the United States from resisting a direct violation of the Monroe Doctrine. Maximilian, who was young, handsome, and much of a dreamer, set up a resplendent court under the influence of the girlish but intensely ambitious Empress Carlota. 
but he continued to enforce the reform laws of Juarez, and that cost him much of the clerical support. He also executed several Mexican generals, including Diaz's brother. The Republicans never acknowledged the empire, but continued to look to President Juarez, who retired first to San Luis Potosí and then to Monterrey. Hard-pressed, Juarez crossed into the United States. The emperor then issued a proclamation declaring that all persons in arms against the government were bandits and would be shot on capture. It was under this shameful decree that Maximilian executed the Mexican generals. Napoleon had sent Field Marshal Bazan to support Maximilian in Mexico with something like 40,000 French bayonets. Bazan recognized in Diaz the most dangerous and intelligent of his enemies, and on his advance, Maximilian tried to win the Patriot General over to his cause. He even persuaded General Uraga, an old and beloved commander under whom Diaz had served, to write to him a seductive letter. Diaz answered in brotherly terms, but scorned the proposal in a letter. After that letter, written when Diaz was 34 years old, when the head of his government was a fugitive, when France and Austria were supporting Maximilian, and when the emperor and his distinguished French field marshal were ready to honor the soldier, to whom they stretched alluring hands, is it any wonder that, during the long years of his power with the Republic at his feet and all opposition dissolved, not once has he been tempted to place a crown on his head, and that now, at the summit of his authority and glory, he offers himself to the 20th century, and to all the centuries after, as a witness for democracy, a prophet of the ultimate virtue and capacity of his people. Bazan assembled an army and moved against Diaz at Oaxaca. The marshal commanded in person in the attack upon the patriot he had failed to corrupt. For weeks, besieged and besiegers fought daily, and the town was constantly under artillery fire. But at last, after losing more than two-thirds of his soldiers, and when all food and ammunition were exhausted, Diaz went on foot at night to Bazan and surrendered Oaxaca. The marshal said he was glad that Diaz realized his error. It was criminal to take up arms against one sovereign. Diaz lifted his head, and looked his conqueror straight in the eyes. I will not join, nor even acknowledge the empire, he answered. I am just as hostile to it as I have been at the cannon's mouth, but further resistance is impossible and further sacrifice useless, as I have neither men nor arms. Then followed a long imprisonment. Diaz once more refused to give his word that he would not take up arms again for the Republic. The emperor sent messages of warning. The French even threatened death to obdurate prisoners. Diaz said frankly that if he could escape, he would take the field against the empire. The prisoner spent four or five months digging a subterranean tunnel from the cell of the convent in which he was confined. But before he could finish the work, he was moved to another convent. His cell was deprived of light and his guards were doubled. During his long imprisonment, one of his old generals, who had entered Maximilian's service, came to his cell and said that the emperor wished to see him, and that the imperial carriage was in waiting to take him into the imperial presence. The emperor desired to give Diaz command of a great part of his army. The prisoner listened coldly, and then, drawing himself to his full height, he said, 
I have no objection to such a meeting, but I will not go in the imperial carriage. The commander of your forces has the right to have me brought before him, but only as his prisoner. And if he is to see me, he must see me in the ranks of his prisoners. It was a fitting answer by the hero of the Americas to the crowned adventurer. Maximilian never forgot it. It is an extraordinary proof of the energy, courage, and resourcefulness of this man that, in spite of the fact that his prison was guarded with unusual vigilance, and that a sentry entered his cell every hour, for he made no secret of his intention to gain his freedom, he contrived by a subterfuge to draw away the attention of his guards and managed to escape alone. Here is his own story of that dramatic night. Late at night on the 20th, I rolled into a small ball three ropes, which I had surreptitiously obtained to assist me in my escape, putting another into my kit bag along with a dagger, perfectly pointed and sharpened, the only weapon at my disposal. After the bell had sounded for silence in the prison, I went out upon an open balcony near the roofs. It overlooked an inner courtyard of the convent. In this place, the coming or going of a prisoner would attract little attention from the sentinels, for it was commonly used by us all for exercise. That night was particularly dark, but the stars shone clearly overhead. I took with me the ropes, wrapped in a gray cloth. Once assured that nobody was about, I flung them up onto the adjacent roof. Then I threw my last rope over a projecting stone gutter above me which seemed very strong. The light was too feeble to enable me to see the gutter well. I tested the strength of my support and, feeling satisfied, climbed up the rope and onto the roof. Then I untied the rope and took possession of the three that I had previously flung up. My walk across the roofs to the corner of San Roque, the point I had chosen for my descent to the street, was very dangerous. Opposite me was the roof of a church, at such a height that it overlooked the whole of the convent. Here a sentinel was posted whose duty it was to watch the convent prison. Before I had made many steps, I came to a part of the roof where there were many windings, for each of the convent cells was built within a semicircular arch, and corridors ran between these rows of arches. Threading my way along and taking advantage of every bit of shelter, crawling at times on hands and knees, I slowly moved in the direction of the sentinel, while seeking the point from which to effect my descent. There were two sides of the courtyard square to be traversed. Often I had to stop and carefully explore the ground over which I moved, for many loose pieces of tiles and glass were strewn about the roof, which cracked and made noises under my feet. Moreover, frequent flashes of sheet lighting illuminated the sky, and at any moment, might have disclosed my whereabouts. At last I came to the protection of a wall, where the sentinel on the church parapet could no longer see me unless he stooped down very low. I walked steadily along and rested, pausing to ascertain if any alarm had been raised. Here I was in great danger, for the stonework sloped and its surface was very slippery after the heavy rains. At one moment, my feet slipped helplessly towards some window panes, which could have offered but little resistance. In fact, I almost fell to the depths below. 
to get up to the street of San Roque, where I hoped to descend. I had to pass a part of the convent, which was used as the chaplain's house. The man had only a short time before denounced some political prisoners who, in an ill-fated effort to escape, had cut a passage toward his dwelling. In consequence of this denunciation, they were the next day taken out and shot. I needed, therefore, to be very careful not to rouse him. Almost breathless, I reached the roof of the chaplain's house, just as a young man who lived there entered by the door. He probably came from the theater, for he was gaily humming in air. I waited until he had reached his room. Shortly afterward, he came out with a lighted taper and actually walked in the direction where I was crouching. Fortunately, I was well concealed. After an interval, he went back to the house. Probably it was only a few minutes, but minutes seemed hours to me in such circumstances. When I thought he had been given sufficient time in his room to have got into bed, perhaps to have fallen asleep, I crept onto the roof and walked from there to San Roque Corner, which at last I reached. Exactly at this corner of the roof, there is a stone statue, which I had intended to make use of in securing my rope. Unfortunately, the saint tottered when I touched him. However, I thought he probably had an iron support to keep him up, but for greater safety, I secured the rope only around the base of the pedestal, which formed the angle of the building, and seemed strong enough to bear any weight. I was afraid if I descended straight into the street at this corner, I might be seen by some passerby in the act of climbing down my rope. I therefore determined to go down by the side of the house away from the main street, which gave me the advantage of some shadow. Alas, by the time I reached the second floor, my feet missed their grip on the sidewall, and slipping down on the garden side, I landed in a pigsty. My dagger first fell from my belt and dropped among the porkers. Then I tumbled in among them. Alarmed at this intrusion, the pigs set up such a squealing that if anyone had run to see what was the matter, I should have been discovered at once. I hid again as soon as I recovered my feet, but I had to wait until the pigs were pacified before venturing to move away from the garden. Then, to reach the street, I climbed a low wall. I had to beat a retreat quickly, for a guard was just passing on his rounds and examining the fastenings of the door below me. When he had gone, I dropped onto the street and breathed freely once more. Sweating and almost exhausted with fatigue, I hurried to the house where I expected to find my horse, my servant, and a guide. Diaz had previously managed to communicate with these allies. Once I was safely inside the house, the three of us loaded our pistols, mounted our horses, and, after avoiding a cavalry patrol, left the city. I was almost certain that we should be stopped at the gate by the guard, and I fully intended to fight my way out. But fortunately, the gate was open. There was a light within the lodge and a saddled horse waiting outside. We went through at a full trot, and once out of the city, to gain time, we broke into a full gallop. While at Tampico, the steamer City of Havana took on board government troops who were going to Veracruz. 
among whom were several officers who recognized him at once, as they were the same men whom General Diaz had but recently defeated and made prisoners at the capture of Matamoros. It was useless for the mysterious passenger to attempt to avoid the inquisitive eyes of his fellow travelers and to refrain from appearing at the table. From the very first, he realized that he had been discovered and was being closely watched, and as unexpected bad weather was delaying the loading of the vessel and her departure to sea, he suspected they would seize and shoot him. Rather than run this danger, he decided to make his escape and trust his life to the dangers of the sea and the sharks. To make matters more difficult, the steamer was anchored a long distance from the entrance to the port. However, his mind was made up. He divested himself of his clothes, and without other weapons than a dagger with which to defend himself against the attacks of sharks, let himself into the sea over the ship's side. He did not provide himself with even a life buoy so as to be less conspicuous, a mark, for anyone who might see him and open fire on him in the water. As it happened, he was seen immediately, because he was watched very closely, and the cry of man overboard warned him that he was discovered and would be pursued. Very soon after, he heard the sound of one of the ship's boats, which had been lowered. Then commenced a terrible race, a manhunt witnessed by hundreds of spectators, in which the destinies of the nation trembled in the balance. The exciting chase was watched by the passengers of the Havana, and the crews of two vessels, one American and the other from Campeche, both of which were anchored near the spot. Assistance was proffered to him from the Campeche boat while he was swimming past her, but he would not accept it. With all the strength of his powerful lungs and with all the skill and daring of an expert swimmer, he clove his way steadily through the water, but in an effort to throw his pursuers off his track, lost his bearings and instead of making for the shore, changed his direction by mistake and made for the open sea. At length, though General Diaz was swimming strongly, his power began to fail him. And after swimming round and round in a vain endeavor to find the right direction, he was forced to abandon the attempt and was dragged into the boat. There he lay, completely worn out by his superhuman efforts and the amount of seawater which he had swallowed on account of the rough, choppy weather, but not unconscious, as some have said. When they were near the ship's side, the postal agent, Gutierrez Zamora, threw him a shirt to put on, as he was naked. After he had been brought on board, Lieutenant Colonel Arroyo, commanding President Lerdo's troops, at once attempted to take charge of the prisoner and try him by court-martial and thus obtain his promotion to the rank of general in reward for his diligence and zeal. But the dauntless swimmer protested against this course of action, and, taking his pistol from under the mattress in his stateroom where it was hidden, called upon the captain of the ship to offer him the protection of the American flag, under which the Havana and her crew were sailing. Lieutenant Colonel Arroyo was all for executing General Diaz without further ceremony as thereby he was assured of his promotion to the rank of general, whereas if he merely took him a long prisoner, the government would not consider this as any particular service, and promotion would be held from him, as had occurred in the case of Tehran, who had been taken prisoner and not executed on the spot. The captain of the ship listened to General Diaz's request, and his aid was the more willingly given, as between him and the prisoner there had passed certain Masonic signs. Moreover, the American sailor was greatly impressed with the daring and courage of a man who had risked his life 
in such a plucky manner. It was arranged that he should be left under guard, but was considered at the same time as being on American soil, and the captain stated that he would not give him up until they reached Veracruz. However, he tried to disarm him, whereat General Diaz declared that he would only use his pistol in self-defense, but that they would have to kill him before he would allow anyone to deprive him of his only weapon. The captain ordered that the guard of an officer and five soldiers which had been placed at the door of General Diaz's cabin should be withdrawn, but Arroyo, with the idea of promotion still uppermost, made a pretense of putting a guard to watch the store of ammunition, and in this way continued to keep a close watch on the man he looked upon as his prisoner. The following night was intensely dark, and the fact that a storm was brewing made all circumstances favorable. Accordingly, General Diaz determined to make another attempt at escape, despite the fact that the captain had offered to transfer him to an American man-of-war, anchored near Tampico, an opportunity he did not care to avail himself of, as it would have delayed his plans. He cleverly managed to slip into the cabin of the purser, whose name was Coney, and told him of his plans. This officer, who was a good friend, endeavored to dissuade him from his determination and eventually suggested another way out of the difficulty. General Diaz agreed to follow his advice. A life buoy was thrown into the sea so as to make the government soldiers think he had jumped overboard. Meanwhile, the prisoner hid himself in the cabin, not under a sofa as common rumor has it, but in a small locker. This ruse proved to be entirely successful, as soon afterward, the disappearance of the prisoner was noticed and his captors rushed to the side of the ship and commenced eagerly scanning the sea, in the hopes of catching sight of him. What they did find, however, was the life buoy, and as this was covered with great patches of bright red iron rust, which looked exactly like blood, it was surmised that the fugitive, in trying to gain the shore, had been eaten by sharks. However, as an additional precaution, General Alonso Flores had troops posted all along the beach so as to capture the prisoner should he succeed in reaching the shore. Meanwhile, General Diaz was undergoing indescribable torments, cramped as he was, within the narrow limits of that tiny cabin locker, or cupboard. He could not stand upright, nor was he able to sit down, and had, besides, to keep his legs wide apart so that the small doors of the locker should be shut. To add to the trying situation, Purser Coney, as a matter of policy and in order to disarm all suspicion, invited the Lairdist officers into his cabin, where they would often spend hours chatting and playing cards. One of them, who was sitting in front of the cupboard, every now and then tilted his chair back, thus pressing the flaps of the door against the unfortunate man hidden within, who suffered agonies while it lasted. In this manner, seven endless days of torment were passed on a diet of ship's biscuits and water until the vessel reached Veracruz, where the dangers and difficulties of escape became more serious. The task before him was to escape from the ship without falling into the hands of the Lairdist troopers who were continually on the lookout for him. Colonel Juan Enriquez who was then chief of the Coast Guard service at Veracruz, managed to smuggle into him a dilapidated sailor's suit and a very old pair of boots, and at the same time sent him word to say that a rowboat in charge of a man whom he would recognize by certain signals would come alongside for him. 
When the ship commenced to unload bales of cotton, and the barges came alongside, his boat also appeared among them. And then the man, who everyone supposed had been eaten by the sharks of Tampico, managed his escape. Once in the south, his power grew and his army won victory after victory. In November 1876, with 12,000 soldiers, he triumphantly rode into the capital. A few weeks later, he was elected president. With the exception of four years, 1880 to 1884, when General Gonzalez was elected because the Constitution afterward amended forbade the re-election of a president, Diaz had been president ever since, and he will remain at the head of the nation until he dies or chooses to retire. Now the soldier became the statesman. He held the turbulent masses still. He made revolution an impossibility. He organized a police system that swept away the bandits. He built schools. He punished corruption and made it known that a concession granted by Mexico would never be repudiated. He caused the national finances to be organized and the national revenues collected and spent honestly and intelligently. He began retrenchments by cutting his own salary from 30,000. Uh, I don't know if it's dollars or pesos. They use the same, the same dollar sign, but I'm going to assume it's pesos, which $30,000 would have been a lot back then in the late 1800s, but 30,000 pesos would still have been quite a lot. So he cut his salary from 30,000 pesos to 15,000 pesos. He made a nation of Mexico, a nation whose laws and whose pledges meant something. It had been proposed that no railroad should be permitted between Mexico and the United States. The Republic was to be saved from future invasion and by an intervening wilderness. Against the bitterest opposition and in the teeth of accusations against his loyalty to the Republic, Diaz welcomed the great trunk railways built by American capital and had generous subsidies granted to them. That was the policy which Diaz set against the cowardly cry, quote, between the strong and the weak, let there be a desert, unquote. The Harriman interests are now building two immense railway lines through the western part of Mexico, spending about a million dollars a week. And these will connect through existing lines with the Pan American Road, which has been built almost to the Guatemalan frontier. Among the most remarkable enterprises now being pushed forward is the Kansas City, Mexico, and Orient line, which Arthur E. Sitwell is constructing. The road is 1,600 miles long and will cost about $30 million. It is already half-built. The Kansas City, Mexico, and Orient Railway will cross the new Harriman lines on the way to its outlet on the Pacific. There are 19,000 miles of railways operated in Mexico nearly all with American managers, engineers, and conductors. And one has only to ride on the Mexican central system or to enjoy the luxury trains of the national line to realize the high transportation standards of the country. So determined is President Diaz to prevent his country from falling into the hands of the trusts that the government is taking over and merging in one corporation with the majority stock in the nation's hands, the Mexican Central, the National, and Interoceanic Lines, so that with this mighty trunk system of transportation beyond the reach of private control, industry, agriculture, commerce, and passenger traffic will be safe from oppression. This merger of 10,000 miles of railway 
into a single company with $113 million of the stock. A clear majority in the government's hands is the answer of President Diaz and his brilliant Secretary of Finance to the prediction that Mexico may someday find herself helplessly in the grip of a railway trust. Curiously enough, the leading American railway officials representing the lines which are to be merged and controlled by the government spoke to me with great enthusiasm of the plan as a distinct forward step, desirable alike for shippers and passengers and for private investors in the roads. Two-thirds of the railways of Mexico are owned by Americans, who have invested about $300 million in them profitably. I have been privately assured by the principal American officers and investors of the larger lines that railway enterprises in Mexico are encouraged, dealt with on their merits, and are wholly free from blackmail, direct or indirect. Mr. Stilwell of Kansas City is not only building a railway from Kansas City through Mexico to the Pacific, in raising capital for which he has taken 1,400 American businessmen on special trains to Mexico within two years, but he has established and controls vast real estate enterprises in the Republic. He has something like $7 million invested in Mexico. In all my dealings with Mexican officials, he said to me, I have never been asked to pay $1 in bribery, direct or indirect. In establishing the American end of my railway, I have had to fight politics and graft constantly. Here in Mexico, I have been treated not only justly, but with great generosity. President Diaz told me once that if I were ever approached for a dollar of tribute by any Mexican official, I had but to disclose the fact, and no matter how high up the official stood, he would lose his post at once. More than $1,200,000,000 of foreign capital has been invested in Mexico since President Diaz put system and stability into the nation. Capital for railways, mines, factories, and plantations has been pouring in at the rate of $200,000,000 a year. In six months, the government sold more than a million acres of land. In spite of what has already been done, there is still room for investment of billions of dollars in the mines and industries of the Republic. American and other foreigners interested in mines, real estate, factories, railways, and other enterprises have privately assured me not once but many times that under Diaz, conditions for investment in Mexico are fairer and quite as reliable as in the most highly developed European countries. The president declares that these conditions will continue after his death or retirement. Since Diaz assumed power, the revenues of the government have increased from about 15 million to more than 115 million. Again, I don't know if that's pesos or dollars. And yet taxes have been steadily reduced. When the price of silver was cut in two, President Diaz was advised that his country could never pay its national debt which was doubled by the change in values. He was urged to repudiate a part of the debt. The president denounced the advice as foolishness, as well as dishonesty. And it is a fact that some of the greatest officers of the government went for years without their salaries, so that Mexico might be able to meet her financial obligations dollar for dollar. The cities shine with electric lights and are noisy with electric trolley cars. English is taught in the public schools of the great federal district, 
The public treasury is full and overflowing, and the national debt decreasing. There are nearly 70,000 foreigners living contentedly and prosperously in the Republic. More Americans than Spaniards. Mexico has three times as large a population to the square mile as Canada. Public affairs have developed strong men like José Ives Limansur, the great Secretary of Finances, one of the most distinguished living financiers, Vice President Corral, who is also Secretary of the Interior, Ignacio Mariscal, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Enrique Creel, the brilliant ambassador at Washington. And it is a land of beauty beyond compare. Its mountains and valleys, again, going on and on about uh, the beauty. It is the hour of growth, strength, and peace, which convinces Porfirio Diaz that he has almost finished his task on the American continent. Yet you see no man in a priest's attire in this Catholic country. You see no religious processions. The church is silent, save within her own walls. This in a land where I have seen the most profound religious emotion, the most solemn religious spectacles, from the blanketed peons kneeling for hours in cathedrals, the men carrying their household goods, the women suckling their babies, to that indescribable host of Indians on their knees at the shrine of the Virgin of Guadalupe. I asked President Diaz about it while we paced the terrace of Chapultepec Castle. He bowed his white head for a moment and then lifted it high, his dark eyes looking straight into mine. He said, We allow no priest to vote. We allow no priest to hold public office. We allow no priest to wear a distinctive dress in public. We allow no religious processions in the streets. When we made those laws, we were not fighting against religion, but against idolatry. We intend that the humblest Mexican shall be so far freed from the past that he can stand upright and unafraid in the presence of any human being. I have no hostility to religion. On the contrary, in spite of all past experience, I firmly believe that there can be no true national progress in any country or at any time without real religion. Such is Porfirio Diaz, the foremost man of the American hemisphere. What he has done almost alone in such a few years for a people disorganized and degraded by war, lawlessness, and comic opera politics is the great inspiration of Pan-Americanism, the hope of the Latin American republics. Whether you see him at Chapultepec Castle, or in his office in the National Palace, or in the exquisite drawing room of his modest home in the city with his young, beautiful wife and his children and grandchildren, he is always the same. Simple, direct, and full of the dignity of conscious power. In spite of the iron government he has given to Mexico, in spite of the continuance in office that has caused men to say that he has converted a republic into an autocracy, it is impossible to look into his face when he speaks of the principle of popular sovereignty without believing that even now he would take up arms and shed his blood in defense of it. Only a few weeks ago, Secretary of State Root summed up President Diaz when he said, quote, It has seemed to me that of all the men now living, General Porfirio Diaz of Mexico was best worth seeing, whether one considers the adventurous, caring, chivalric incidents of his early career, whether one considers the vast work of government which his wisdom and courage and commanding character accomplished, whether one considers his singularly attractive personality, 
No one lives today that I would rather see than President Diaz. If I were a poet, I would write poetic eulogies. If I were a musician, I would compose triumphal marches. If I were a Mexican, I should feel that the steadfast loyalty of a lifetime could not be too much in return for the blessings that he had brought to my country. As I am neither poet nor musician nor Mexican, but only an American who loves justice and liberty and hopes to see their reign among mankind progress and strengthen and become perpetual, I look to Porfirio Diaz, President of Mexico, as one of the great men to be held up for the hero worship of mankind. All right, that is the end. Next week, we will have the full interview with Porfirio Diaz. Thank you for listening.